I'm Kate King. And I'm Mavis Vandenberg. We're colleagues and executive leaders in a global nonprofit. Leading in conversation is our passion. We're excited about the transformative power of free-flowing conversations that generate new insights and open up possibilities for change. As we've begun to experiment with conversational leadership and seen it transform how we work in our organization, we've also found that it resonates with other leaders and they want to know more. This podcast is our response to that growing interest. Together and with guests, we want to explore how conversational leadership works on a daily basis in the workplace. Good to be together again to talk about conversational leadership. Yes, definitely. I've been looking forward to this. So have I. In today's episode, we're going to dig into the fundamentals of conversational leadership. What does it look like in practice? How does it actually work? So in the first episode, we, we gave an overview of the six key principles of conversational leadership. And for those who haven't heard that, they may want to go and listen to our first podcast. Today, we're looking at what it actually looks like, how it works. And Kate, maybe you can start us off on saying something about that. Why is conversational leadership actually important? Well, I think we we started to look at this last episode, but for me, um, conversation has the power to generate new ideas, to help people come to new insights themselves, uh, to help all of us come to new insights ourselves. I think that often emerges in conversation more than we recognize or realize and that leads us to make commitments to change what we do in reality and then that leads to change in our lives both small changes and large changes in our personal lives in our organizational lives etc so it actually creates a chain of events doesn't it so conversation Starts yeah. with that generation of ideas to new insights to commitments to actual change. That, that's quite cool, actually. Yes, and I, I think it happens so unconsciously most of the time that we don't realize we're doing it. I bring an idea to you or just, just mention something in a conversation. That changes somehow how you think. You bring something from your experience to add to that the idea grows, it bounces back and forwards. You may mention it to someone else over coffee in the office. And then you know, things grow through those acts of relating to each other. Yeah. And that can be both in the small things and the big things, isn't it? So it's those conversations at an individual level and organization wide that are actually the core of real change. Yes. Absolutely. I was just looking at the blue walls behind you. Our listeners can't see that. And remembering a comment I made about how white your office was. And um, that led to a chain of events where now you have beautiful blue walls. You know, just just a throwaway comment brought that yeah. change about. Um, yeah, and, and that's, that's a really that's small the, change. Yeah, and even the big changes work the same way. So, yeah, one example of that is in a conversation uh, I was in earlier, we talked about the difference between survival mindset and opportunity mindset. And that triggered for me all sorts of recognition in the organization and then saying, I want to talk about that. 
and that then triggered other people talking about that and it's it's you brought it to us and now it's an expression that we have started using it becomes the thing our thinking people people start acting it out and it's not something you control it happens and we'll touch on that later when we talk about changing the narrative because i think that's a good example about changing the narrative from survival to opportunity yeah exactly yeah, but it's important to note that those changes don't happen overnight, do they? It, it, you can't force that kind of change to happen. It's got to come from the inside of us. We've got to embrace something ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think we were going to talk a little bit about the different uses of conversational leadership today. We in our own organization have used conversational leadership quite a, a lot in change processes in in those big change processes concrete examples would be we held a staff consultation about a financial issue that touched people personally we also held a conversational process to set a new vision and mission for the organization we had direction setting conversations with a group of staff delegates at our international conference so we've used it in those big processes and i think we're becoming more comfortable and confident about doing that now but it can also apply in our daily life as leaders. Um, and that's, I think, where we're both experimenting still. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. So it's, it's not just the, the big things, it's also the small things. And, and just recently, I worked with our leadership team to, to change the, the way we meet to be more emergent, to not have everything nailed down ahead of time as to how we're going to go through the agenda and to really have have more of a flow of unpredictable conversations and to embrace that it feels kind of risky but but to trust ourselves that it's going to go somewhere yeah Yeah. and i think that's really improved the quality of of our meetings recently another example is i've just recently uh, started conversations with groupings of staff throughout the organization where I don't come with an agenda ahead of time, but basically say, I want to hear where you're at. I want to get into your skin in a way. What does it feel like where you are? Yeah. Um, and that triggers a new dynamic and, and ideas to follow up on and people saying, yeah, and, and there's a real <laughs> appreciation of that. And I think that again, creates a a dynamic of of trust and small changes that allow us to to move forward in in new ways. I'll admit this is hard to do. I've been wrestling with this a little bit recently. Our default as leaders is often to speak before we listen. And these ingrained habits are hard to change. And also there's the expectation that as a leader, you will lead, you will have ideas. I think we mentioned this last time. And it also takes a lot more time to open up a decision to conversation consultation. It means being willing to pay attention to feedback and reconsider decisions. I had an example recently with one of the teams that reports to me where the team leader and I had kind of made a decision about a a new publication we were going to, to do. And she took it to the team and they were like, oh, actually we don't think that's a good idea. We don't think that works. And I had to stop myself and go, oh, bother. I really should have done this in a more conversational, consultative way with that team. Rather than just the two leaders at the top making a decision, we were going to produce this publication and do this. 
it would have been so much better to start out saying, well, you know, here's the here's the challenge, or here's the situation. How are we going to approach this? What what publication will work? What channels, etc. So it's it's a constant sort of reorientation of our own habits as leaders. I think. Yeah, it's good to know also when that is needed and when it's not. It's it's an art. It's not a science. Yes, there's no list of when to use conversational leadership and when to be more directive there are certain situations where it's just inappropriate in a crisis where a decision needs to be made very quickly you can't say well wait we're going to set up a conversational process and invite all these people sometimes you just have to make a decision i think yeah, sometimes it is something that's small enough that it really doesn't have much impact uh, beyond a small group of people so you just can make that decision sometimes it's a very short conversation that can be done in 30 minutes sometimes it's it's a very prolonged process and knowing that is, is something you we all need to learn so Nailis, what do you think it takes to use conversational leadership well in day-to-day management how does that work for you for example so there's two aspects on, on that. And, and I think we need to go into this more deeply in a separate podcast, but there is an element of things to do and there's an element of attitudes. So the things to do is you need to consciously empower others to help people come up with their own solutions rather than present the solution to people and basically say yay or nay. Secondly, I think it, it requires that you build the connections with all the different stakeholders. So as a leader, your role is to bring all the key people together. So that, that's, I think, a key aspect that you bring in as a leader. As a leader, you also need to ensure that there is a diversity of opinions. Uh, we've talked about that earlier in our earlier podcast. It's ensuring diversity is key there. Again, conversational leadership is about action. You need to, in the end, make sure that solutions are actually implementable, that there is actual progress, so there's an, a sense of accountability around that too. It's taking it into action, which, which is, again, a role of leadership. I want to yeah, underline those two things. The leader continues to have a key role. You're not, not just a bystander. And the leader has a key role in ensuring action. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned um, it's about attitudes. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? What should be the attitudes of the leader? Yeah, I think a key attitude of the leader is openness. So that means that you allow this process of thinking out out loud together. I, and I find myself constantly saying that. I am just thinking out loud here. Please. You do. You say it all the time. <laughs> please give your ideas, feedback, etc. Secondly, I think it, it, it requires transparency, honesty, and open-handedness. And that's linked to what I said earlier, of course. And that requires an attitude also of withholding judgment. Mm-hmm. And, yes. and you, you talked about that earlier, that you as a leader don't come, even subconsciously with the attitude, that like you have all the answers. Like you truly think that the answers of others may be, or actually very likely are superior to, be better than to ours. <laughs> Yes. That's hard. It's hard, isn't it? Leaders tend to have a certain personality type, often quite confident about the solutions they've come up with. So it, it takes humility. Uh, it takes, yeah, stepping back and, and saying, you know what, these people probably have better answers or solutions than I do. Yeah, because as a leader, you think you're the expert. 
but many, many times you're actually not. Can and I that's quote an attitude of respect? Yes, you can. <laughs> Please quote me on that. <laughs> okay. All of this is attitude and kind of approaches. That's all great. It may be helpful to explore a little bit what actual steps are. What are the things you need to do concretely? A process. Let's explore that. And I think the first step in the process is framing the issue. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. You can, you can all gather for a conversation, but you need to know what you're talking about. This can be a problem, a question we want to solve, an exploration of an issue before the problem is even uh, identified, is even clear. And um, the leader can frame that, the issue or you can do that as a group, I guess. I think it's important that there's clarity about what needs addressing. But at the same time, that may shift as part of the conversation. Actually, the important, the really important problem at the root of something may not be the thing you've identified, but it may emerge. The deeper issue may emerge as you're talking. So you need to, to be ready to keep an eye on that, really, and, um, and sense what the real issue is and let the conversation flow in that direction if it needs to always with this sense of what are we trying to address? That there is always this framing, but realizing that that frame may actually shift throughout the conversation and that yeah. you, you're framing that together, but constantly keep in mind that it's not just yeah. a free-for-all about anything. Because you want the conversation to be productive and it needs to be framed well in order to be productive otherwise you're going to range all over the place and touch on lots of interesting things but but not actually get anywhere yeah another word to use would be to have clear intent yeah yeah so the next stage i think is then well you've got to have invited people to join the conversation probably before you frame the issue for them but you probably want to frame the issue so that you can invite people uh, to join you do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, to me, that's a key second part of the basics of a process is having the right people in the room or in the conversation. The, the room may be a lot of rooms over a lot of time. But, yeah. And that may actually take time. And who the right people are may actually be a process of discovery. I think it's important to have a feel for who are some of the key people I know about and then have these people point to others that they're saying, okay, these people would be good at being part of this conversation. And I think uh, there's some good examples of that. Yeah, we both read uh, this book by Patricia Shaw, Changing Conversations in Organizations. And I love her case study at this um, company in Italy. I'm not sure if it's fictitious or not, Ferrovia. But the, the process of adding people to the conversation, I, I don't know if the phrase the coalition of the willing came from, from her or someone else, but just sometimes chaotic process of, of just pulling people in and, and someone saying, oh, wait, we need to go invite that guy and they all had great Italian names uh, in that uh, department over there. And, and, and obviously that's easier when you all work on one site than if you're remote like us. But still, you can say, well, you know, let's schedule another meeting. Let's pull that person in. But just almost spontaneous, but engaging the energy and passion of those involved or those they know, rather than sitting down with your list as a leader and sort of writing up who the logical people are to be involved in this, whether they're interested or not. And I love that expression, the coalition of the willing, because sometimes the most obvious people, most obvious stakeholders are not actually willing or interested, but they might be somebody completely out there 
you hadn't thought of who's actually got so much to bring and I always talk about getting beyond the usual suspects and actually again as we said many times the novelty comes the innovation comes when you invite diversity into the process yeah and it's actually an invitation to more people it 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 also shows respect to people who who have ideas that even if they don't have a formal position that they are allowed to be part of that process they they would be invited in i think that can be very powerful we need to get better at that better at looking beyond our immediate circle of connections beyond the usual suspects and finding out who those people are yeah, because we only know who we know. Yeah. You and I know only a very limited set of people. And that's yeah. true for any leader. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and for these people to function well, it may be good to be aware people need to feel safe. So you need to create safe spaces or containers. So can you say a little bit more about that? Two people who've written a lot about this are Jacob Storch and Chris Corrigan. And I have a little quote from Chris Corrigan defining uh, containers as intangible yet real spaces in which the potential and possibility of a group can unfold. Containers can be you know, a one-off event or a series of events or a series of conversations. We, I think we probably give this a whole other episode at some point. So focusing on creating a safe space or a, a container can involve anything from the physical environment of where you're meeting to the code of conduct uh, for participation, the tools you use and other intangible aspects that ensure the psychological safety of the group and the openness to share and explore new ideas to make it a really generative space. It's really important that people feel safe, safe from the repercussions of sharing honestly, especially if you're in a, a leadership role, the dynamic, the power dynamic there, you have to be really careful that you make people feel safe that what they share is not going to be repeated somewhere else or it's going to come back to haunt them. Yeah, I think that's really important because people hold back if they feel that there is a risk that they're going to be hurt by it. And that sense of holding back will kill the conversation. And, and, and I think that yeah. is often the case, actually. People are Definitely. like, well, can I safely contribute this or not? We've both experienced that in cross-cultural situations as well with our multicultural teams that very often the loudest voices in the rooms are those of the Westerners. Others are holding back and we really need the voices of everyone, not just our Western expat um, colleagues, but our majority world staff, uh, especially as we're often working in their cultures, in their contacts, in their languages. Yeah. One example, um, I was just thinking earlier about this when I was first learning about participatory methods and I was using a consensus workshop method of the Canadian Institute for Cultural Affairs, the ICA, and they had this thing they call workshop assumptions. We had written the assumptions up on a big poster at the front of the room and it, it really struck me. And we kept drawing people's attention back to the workshop assumptions, things like everyone has wisdom everyone's wisdom is needed you know, because often in group conversations you have those dominant people who consume the sound space and as a facilitator or as a leader facilitating you need to make sure that you know those assumptions are respected that that we need to hear from everyone you're talking about facilitation that actually brings us yeah. nicely to the next point it's a great segue into structure and tools for hosting a conversation yeah, we'll explore a little bit the difference between facilitating and hosting. 
I think it's good for you to maybe say a little bit about participatory methods that are often used in this sphere. Mm, well, must say at the outset, I am not an expert in this at all. We'll have to bring some of our participatory methods colleagues in at some point, but I'm a big fan of participatory methods and I'm very much still learning. I think uh, there's so many great tools out there and participatory methods, um, facilitation tools. Some of the ones we've used are World Cafe, Appreciative Inquiry, Outcome Mapping, Consensus Workshop, Focus Conversations, Polarity Management, maybe some of those ring bells with our, our listeners, but there are so many more. But I think one lesson that we've learned is that while the methods and tools are excellent, we need to keep an eye on the overall flow of conversations. Sometimes the tools and methods can get in the way and take center stage, and that becomes unhelpful. I'm thinking of sessions where I've seen groups figuring out how to use the tool and that's really eclipsed or taken the space of the conversation. So we've got to be careful not to overstructure and not to sort of focus on the tool and the perfect implementation of the method to the extent that the process becomes transactional rather than transformational. I, I'm still trying to figure that one out, to be honest. Yeah, actually, and, and we're still figuring that out. And, and that comes back to that comment I made earlier about hosting and facilitating, because most of those tools assume a facilitator. And as a leader or even as an outside yeah. consultant, you're then the facilitator. And everything kind of flows back to that facilitator. It's the facilitator who draws the conclusions. It's the facilitator who people talk to. And so they become the core sort of focus, whereas a normal free-flowing conversation shifts all the time around. People don't talk to one person, but they talk to each other. It's quite dynamic. And that's when I think you're hosting, when the dynamic ebb and flow of conversation happens naturally. Yeah, I, I love that concept of hosting. But as you said, we're still figuring out what that looks like and, and how to do that in practice. And it, it's hard to host as a participant as well, isn't it? I've observed you doing this in our leadership team meetings where you're hosting, but you're also wanting to contribute as yourself. Any reflections on that experience? Yeah, actually, it's interesting because in some ways, I think that is the power of it because you're facilitating, you can't. But if you're hosting, you are actually a participant yourself as well. I mean, think of the host of a dinner party. The host participates. Yeah. The host makes sure that conversation keeps flowing, but at the same time participates and, and engages and has his Asks or her questions. own opinions. and Brings people questions. in who are quiet. And, yeah. yeah. And, and I think that idea is actually quite powerful because as a leader, you're not just a facilitator. You have to participate. Because you've got a lot to contribute. Others have a lot to contribute, but you do too. So it's, it's, yeah. I think I find that a very powerful concept. And maybe that takes us then actually quite naturally to the next element of our process thoughts. Yeah. You need to make space for the spontaneous. So yes. you already quoted uh, Shaw. Sure, sure, sure. Mm. Yeah. Anything more you want to say about that? Oh, this is such a challenge, especially for someone who's a bit of a planner like me, a bit of a J on the Myers-Briggs uh, inventory. Yeah, spontaneity, going with the flow. We referred to this when we were talking about framing as well, watching for the, the real issue that emerges. But being ready to flex and change your plans at the last minute and even mid-session is, I think, hard for us as leaders, but essential as hosts. And this is where leading by feel and intuition comes in. 
And I was thinking about an example from our international conference in 2016, where I was on the facilitation team. And while we were planning a couple of months before, I had this sense that one session, it was the Saturday morning, it was a real pivotal, I think it was actually exactly halfway through the event. I just had this sense that that session would be pivotal and that we should hold our plans lightly. And that was really sort of scary, paying attention to my intuition there. But sure enough, that session came around and got completely diverted into a topic that had arisen during the event that one of the participants had brought to the facilitation team and said, I think we need to actually pay attention to what's arisen here and talk about some of the things people shared. And I was standing at the back with my notes for the day, you know, almost throwing away a page at a time as the minutes ticked on through the session. But I was okay because I had had that sense before that this was going to happen. And, you know, for me, that was probably a bit of a God moment being sort of given that nudge beforehand. So I was ready to abandon my session plans and flex. And actually, I think we had 15 minutes left at the end to try and fit everything from the session in. We didn't, we reworked it. But that change was exactly what we needed at the time in that overall process. So I think that making space for the spontaneous is really important. And also as part of that, paying attention to the small things that happen, the throwaway comments with people outside of these containers, outside of these formal processes, picking up on things. I remember we did a conversational process about one of our action plans. We got our operational units to give feedback. And in the margin of one the group's notes. They'd done some doodles. Do you remember this? Yes, I do. Uh, for a way to express the action plan goals. And it was such a great sort of global, I think we had a very linear representation at the time, an arrow. I think you might have actually created it. And they had this little doodle and um, we gave that to our designer who then came up with that and it became our sort of logo. I think Asia had it printed on that mug. Somebody else had a key ring or something. And it was just really fun to see. But it's paying attention to those small things as well as the big things and just being spontaneous and adding those in. Yeah, I love that. And that requires something else that we had talked about as part of the process is that you need to stay long enough in the grown zone. What's, so, what's the grown zone, Niels? Yeah, Sam Kainer has done some work on that. So the facilitator's guide to participatory decision-making talks about that. But the grown zone is this area, the time in a process where you have no idea how it's going to ever <laughs> come to a good conclusion and i've often seen that you've oh, got yeah. this sense of it's horrible this plane is not going to land <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> what are we doing where are we going to end up on this yeah exactly and that sense of staying there not trying to quickly move out of that and get to the comfortable solution landing but yeah. stay in that exploratory phase where things seem to go in every direction to embrace that chaos and then consciously stay at it i think that's quite important it feels very messy it feels disorganized it feels frustrating it's not for nothing called the grown zone but that <laughs> is where in a way the creativity happens that's where people are forced outside of their comfort zone and to explore new ways of looking at things. Yeah. And the way that Kena brings it up in his book, he's talking about a process where you have a time of gathering as, as much uh, input as you can, the sort of divergent phase. And it's the turning point before you head into the convergent phase where you're trying to sort of settle and come to conclusions and action items, et cetera. And if you try to jump too quickly into that convergence 
you'll miss that essential kind of magic that happens in the grown zone where suddenly everything sort of settles out and people come to a realization and then agreements start to form and, and directions flow. And I think we've all been there. And I loved it when I came across uh, in this book, Facilitator's Guide to Participatory Decision-Making. He calls it the grown zone. I was like, yes, that perfectly describes it. And I often tell people beforehand now, there's going to be this thing called the grown zone and you'll know when we get there because it's horrible. And you just think, why are we doing this? Can we have a coffee break now? Can we leave? Can we finish? Yeah. And there's a comfort in knowing that, isn't there? That, yes, this is normal. Yeah. And we need to grow our tolerance for uncertainty and ambiguity and chaos, I think, and our patience. And trust in each other and trust in the process. Yeah. But you do need to come to conclusions, which is then the yeah. last part we wanted to talk about is, well, the last part of the process we want to explore mm. is you need to come to conclusions. That actually means that all of the conversations need to then be sort of translated into commitments to do something, commitments to act. I think it's really important to note here that those conclusions are not about the prescriptions for everyone else what they need to do it is actually what you commit to yourself what am i wanting to do what do i commit to that's quite different but i think that's important the conclusions are about my commitment to the change yeah yeah and dialogic organization development bush and marshak they talk about probes as the outcome really where you go from a dialogic process is giving the people involved in the process the permission and space to then launch probes. That means to try things out, to put their innovations into practice. So you, you create space for them to do that in their job and you give them budget. You, you give them permissions necessary for them to try things out that attempt to work out the conclusions reached in the conversation. And that's, again, another area we need to look into, experiment with. Because what you don't want is a great conversation to happen and then everything to get handed back to the leaders, who we all know are often the bottleneck in processes, in change. As leaders, we need to start opening up space for others to experiment and try things out and also to fail because we can learn from our failures as much from our, and more probably than from our successes. Yeah, I think that's, that's great. Because otherwise you abandon the conversational leadership approach immediately after the first yes. conversation. It's an ongoing thing. It's a repeated thing. And even that sense of conclusion is always a temporary conclusion. It's a conclusion for now. And mm-hmm. then the cycle restarts. It gets repeated in different places throughout the organization. It's been great. Kate. I, I really enjoyed this. And I really hope it inspires people to do this experimentation, to be part of such a cycle, to create space, to be in the ground zone, to innovate, to start those probes, this invitation to experimentation. And it's good to say again that this is something that's an art. It's not a science. It's something that needs to be learned through practice. And I'm really looking forward to people experimenting with this and sharing back with us what they're learning, where they have struggled, where they have seen it work, what's been exciting. So bring in your comments. On that point, leadinginconversation.net, please add your comments and continue the conversation with us yes and we'll see what emerges yep okay that's all for today thank you for listening